From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, is a progressive disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. More than 5,000 people in the U.S. are diagnosed with ALS each year. On today's program, we'll talk about ALS with a Mayo Clinic expert. You know, there's been a lot of research looking at patients. The median survival is from two to five years, but we have treated patients that are 10, 20 years after their initial diagnosis. Also on the program, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine joins me as co-host. We'll learn about new research on trends in opioid use. And a new radiotherapy approach aimed at preserving cognitive function. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, is a progressive neurological disease that destroys nerve cells, slowly, gradually, causing more and more loss of function. ALS is sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease after the famous baseball player who was diagnosed with it. ALS often begins with muscle twitching and weakness in a limb or in slurred speech. Eventually, ALS affects control of the muscles needed to move, speak, eat, and breathe. While there is no cure for ALS, there are treatments that can help to slow the progression of the disease. And here to discuss ALS and how it can be treated is Mayo Clinic neurologist, Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Martinez-Thompson. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you for having me. Dr. Martinez-Thompson, so nice to have you on the program. A neurologist who treats people with ALS. Do you enjoy this job? It's, it's a difficult job, but there's a lot of things that we can offer these patients. And so it's a very rewarding experience to work with these patients and their families and be able to help them along the course of their disease. So it's very valuable. So explain the term amyotrophic lateral sclerosis to us, sure. if, if it's possible. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really based off how clinicians initially describe the disorder. So thinking back to the 19th century and the initial clinical descriptions of patients, with ALS, the amyotrophic term comes from the loss of muscle bulk, which we term atrophy of muscle. Myo meaning muscle. Myo meaning muscle. Trophic meaning Meaning, shrinkage. Exactly, shrinkage of the muscle. And then the lateral meaning that it tended to be lateralized on the side of the body. So it might start on the right side Mm. of the body in a limb versus the left side and then spread from there. So lateralized in that sense. And sclerosis meaning that when they looked at the pathology, of the nerves, it seemed like there was loss of nerves at different portions of the spinal cord and other areas of the body, so that sclerosing component, loss of the actual nerves. Would that be amenable to scarring? Would the, yes, the scarring yes. of the, of the cord nerves? Yes. Okay. Can anyone get this disease? That's a really good question. We don't really understand the cause at this point. We can talk about that a little bit uh, more later on, but really looking at what it is that uh, underscores this disorder, we don't know of a specific trigger. So really, it can affect anybody. It can affect men and women about equally. It can affect people of different ages. There's not really an ethnic or racial predisposition. Um, And so really anybody in society can be affected. Does it run in families at all? It does. So we do understand some of the genetics uh, about the disorder. And actually in the last 
five to 10 years, there's been a lot more genetic discoveries. So there's a small percentage, about 10% of cases of ALS that do run in families. And so there are multiple members within the family that manifest with this weakness and the symptoms that you discussed earlier on. What exactly is happening to the nerve? Is it dying or is it malfunctioning or what's happening? That's a good question. So it is actual degeneration of the nerve itself. Um, we don't know what the initial trigger is that causes that initial degeneration, but once it starts, we think it's almost like a domino effect. And so if it starts in a region of the body and then there's the degeneration, then it spreads from that point to other points in the body, and then it almost takes a life of its own. Is there an associated genetic abnormality that you can actually actually test for, or do you know what the gene abnormality is? So there has been a more recent genetic discovery with a gene that's called, or a mutation specifically, that's called C9ORF72 that's on a specific chromosome, chromosome nine. And that seems to be responsible for the largest proportion of cases of uh, genetically based ALS, so those that run in families. But beyond that, there's about 30 genes at this point that have been discovered, all with similar mechanisms and similar pathways involving different families um, that have been identified. But the C9ORF72 is the most common one that we've identified. So Tracy kind of alluded to the, the usual presenting symptoms, but expand on that for us. Well, you, the most patients that you see, how do they present? So typically, it starts with weakness. It's weakness without any associated pain or sensation change. It may start in an arm or it may start in a leg. And over some period of months, that weakness can then progress to involve other muscles within that limb and then spread to involve the other limb and then from there continue to spread to involve the remaining limbs or the muscles that involve uh, facial contraction, swallowing function, speech, and breathing function. Uh, but it can vary from person to person in the way that it presents. So we do see a lot of variety uh, in terms of how the symptoms initially manifest in people. And then how do you nail down the diagnosis? So that one, it can be a very difficult diagnosis to make because as you know, there's not a specific blood test. We do have genetic testing where we suspect it, but they're not, there's not a specific blood test that we can test for that says, yes, you have the disease or no, you do not have the disease. So it's a clinical diagnosis in the sense that you have to combine what you see on the neurologic examination. So based on the symptoms the patients have and then combine that with testing um, specifically electromyography and nerve conduction studies, where you look at the way that the electricity, electricity actually conducts through the nerves, and then with a different portion of that test, the electromyography, look for signs of nerve degeneration within the muscle, and look for specific findings in how uh, that degeneration pattern's happening that may give you a clue as to what's going on. So you have to put all of that together for a diagnosis. It does not sound like a quick process. It sounds like it must be quite an ordeal. It, during this time for the patient. It is, it is. And it can be very anxiety provoking and frustrating for the patient because early on, it may be very difficult to diagnose if they have specific findings that are confined to an arm or a leg. And sometimes we do have to continue to follow closely to see how things change over time to help us come up with a more definitive diagnosis. So it does create a lot of anxiety for the patients and their families. It would make sense that the first thing that you would do I guess maybe to ease their mind, I mean, it wouldn't be a good diagnosis, but would just be to do the genetic test straight away 
to see if you have that malfunction in your genes. That's a that's actually a uh, interesting point that you raise, and it's a tricky one uh, because there are a lot of other disorders that can overlap mm. with similar features as you might see in ALS, and so you know testing for genetics up front it, it can be a, an expensive ordeal not one that's always covered by insurance and so we want to balance that with how high we think the likelihood is that somebody has the diagnosis certainly in those that have a family history of ALS we may be uh, testing for the genetic tests specifically sooner in their course but it is a very detailed you know, discussion up front about the repercussions of genetic testing and what the results might mean for them and their families. So it sounds like it might do very well, often is very much a, a, a diagnosis of exclusion um, that you can't really tell necessarily early on what it is. And how, for example, do you tell the difference between ALS and MS? Uh, that's a good question as well. So you know, MS, you're looking at a central nervous system disorder. And so the findings that you see when there's central nervous system dysfunction are things like stiff muscles or what we call spasticity, weakness or slowness of movement of the muscle, and reflexes that are hyperactive, so very jumpy reflexes. Whereas in ALS, it is a disorder that affects the motor nerves specifically that travel from the brain to the spinal cord and then the connections from the spinal cord to the muscle. And so you get a different pattern of findings there in the sense that you get not only that upper motor neuron dysfunction, but also that lower motor neuron component. And so there's some additional findings, like you were mentioning, the atrophy or loss in muscle bulk, sometimes loss of reflexes in combination with increased reflexes in other parts of the body, the muscle twitching or fasciculations. And you have to look at that pattern carefully in that mixed pattern. There's not really another condition that gives you that type of mixed pattern of findings. All right, good thing there are experts like you. Yeah. All right, we're talking about ALS with a Mayo Clinic expert, neurologist, Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment options and living with ALS and this myth or matter of fact. The average life expectancy of a patient with ALS is two to five years. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, with a Mayo Clinic expert, neurologist, Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson. So myth or matter of fact, Dr. Martinez-Thompson, the average life expectancy of a patient with ALS is two to five years. Is that a myth or a fact? That's a fact. You know, there's been a lot of research looking at patients with ALS and population-based studies and what the survival is. And so the, the median survival is ranging anywhere from two to five years from the time of diagnosis. Uh, but there's a lot of variation within that. So we have patients that may have a more aggressive course where the disease progresses more rapidly. And in those cases, it may be less than two years since the time of diagnosis. But we are, have treated patients in our clinic that are 10, 20 years after their initial diagnosis. 20 and years? It's very slowly. They just have very slowly progressive 
form of the disease. Is that genetic as well, the form, the type of ALS that a patient has? That's a really good question. And so we have found that with certain genetic mutations, it may dictate um, the aggressiveness of the disease. So some may have a more rapidly progressive form, whereas others may have a more slowly progressive form. And even in the way that patients present, that may affect their disease course. So for example, patients that perhaps instead of having the weakness start in an arm or a leg, for example, may actually start with their speech or swallowing function. Mm-hmm. And those patients tend to have more aggressive diseases compared to others. No matter what form of disease they have, can you prolong the course of the disease with medications? Or what do you have to help treat these patients? So there are two treatments that were approved by the Food and Drug Administration, one that's been on the market since the mid-1990s. So, so it's a medicine that is called Riluzol, or Rilutec is the a trade name, and it's a tablet that uh, patients take twice a day. What the studies have found for that one is that it prolongs survival by a few months. So we have variation of whether patients are interested in that medication or not based on the findings from those initial uh, uh, clinical trials of the medication. but. More recently, um, in August of 2017, a new medicine came on the market called Idaravone or Radicava. And this is a little different than the Riluzol in that it's administered through an infusion. So it's actually an intravenous administration, and it's a little bit more involved in the sense that the treatments happen in a two-week cycle, and then there's a two-week break period in between, and you repeat on a monthly cycle. What that medication, um, the the trials that were based out of Japan showed is that it can slow the progression of disease in patients taking that in addition to the oral tablet, the Riluzol, by about 30% uh, in a select population of those patients. And so we have very limited experience at this point uh, with the Adaravone. It's been about a year that we've been treating patients, so we don't know what that means in terms of the long-term ramifications of continued use of the medication, but we're certainly excited with things that are on the horizon, um, and hopefully here in the next five years or so, there'll be some additional medications on the market just to help to prolong the course. In addition to the, those two medications that you mentioned, what else can you do or do you do for these patients? So I think really the most important thing is the supportive care and managing of the symptoms. People think, you know, a diagnosis of ALS is there much that you can offer, and in fact, yes, there there is. I mean, it's really uh, best served in a multidisciplinary environment, so teams that are designed that have a lot of expertise in, in uh, helping patients and their families with this diagnosis uh, and managing their symptoms. So, for example, the clinic that we have based out of here is a team of eight or nine people that meet with patients and their families every few months, so ranging from expertise from a neurologist to a physiatrist, physical occupational therapist, respiratory therapist, uh, speech therapists, um, and you know, go expanding from that, uh, and just helping to tackle any, you know, new issue that may arise, and help the patients and their families through that. Do you have any research uh, that you're involved in, in in helping to figure out the mystery of ALS? So one of the things that we have going at Mayo are the mesenchymal stem cell trials right now. And so, you know, the ALS providers through the clinic 
uh, are involved in that big multi-center trial. So it's a phase three trial um, that's placebo control and double blinded testing intrathecal mesenchymal stem cell injection. So that I know okay, that's so a big whoa. term. That's a big term. <laughs> All right. So tell but, us about what phase three means in yeah, intrathecal. Absolutely. Break so, that sentence yeah. down for me. So, <laughs> so phase three is the larger trials where we're really testing whether uh, a treatment is going to be uh, beneficial or not. And so we usually compare it to what we call placebo. So, All right, and so there's been some success with it in phase one, phase two. Now it's a bigger trial to try and prove whether or not it really is effective and how effective. Correct, so we know that it's a, it's a safe medication. There's really not a lot of side effects associated with it, so now it's really testing is this gonna be beneficial or not in patients. And so that's really the most active research that we have um, intrathecal? Right now. Intrathecal meaning that you uh, administer the medication through a spinal tap, okay. so a lumbar wow. puncture. Additional research into trying to find the cause of this or who might be predisposed or likely to get it? So some of the other research is expanding on the genetics that we talked about earlier. Uh, so really trying to figure out in individuals that perhaps with the initial round of genetic testing, there wasn't something specific identified. If there are any additional genetic factors that may predispose them to the disease. Because one of the things that's very difficult with ALS is that it's such a wide spectrum of presentation, the way people present or how aggressive the disease might be. So trying to figure out, can we identify specific groups of people and how the disease might evolve over time so that you can target the therapies to those specific groups of people? Because right now, treating such a varied presentation of, you know, uh, how people might present with a disease is very difficult with a single treatment. You don't know if the treatment you're giving is going to cover everybody or do you need to be more precise with how you're administering those treatments. So it's an unusual, difficult disease, but what usually causes death in patients with ALS? And it must be a very difficult end-of-life sort of scenario. It is, and it really it's the it's the respiratory dysfunction. So breathing, uh, breathing essentially, because the breathing muscles are affected as well, um, and so it's usually a complication related to that that uh, leads to death. Will there ever be a cure? Oh well, we're very hopeful in the field. Again, there's a lot of active areas of research, and so we hope that as continued therapies come on the market and we understand more of the mechanism of what causes the disease, that we can achieve a cure. But it will take some time. So right now you've got two drugs plus one that you can give uh, as a spinal tap, which shows some promise. You've got occupational therapy, physical therapy, family support. So you've you've got a lot of things, but hopefully on the horizon something even better. That's what we're hoping for. Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson, she's a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic and an expert on ALS. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine joins me as co-host. We'll learn about new research on trends in opioid use. And later on in the program, a new radiotherapy approach aimed at preserving brain function. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. More women should be screened for cervical cancer. 
A Mayo Clinic study published in the Journal of Women's Health shows the percentage of women who are screened for cervical cancer may be far lower than national data suggests. Less than two-thirds of women ages 30 to 65 were up to date with cervical cancer screenings in 2016. The percentage is even lower for women ages 21 to 29, with just over half current on screenings. Family medicine specialist and lead author of the study, Dr. Kathy McLaughlin, says these cervical cancer screening rates are unacceptably low and that routine screening every three years with a pap test or every five years with a pap HPV co-test ensures precancerous changes are caught early and may be followed more closely or treated. In addition to lower-than-expected screening rates, Mayo Clinic researchers also found racial inequalities in terms of who is getting screened. Dr. McLaughlin says these racial disparities are especially concerning and that these study results should prompt health care providers to start considering new ways of reaching out to patients to help ensure they get screened. And now let's talk about working in that workout. For many people, no matter how great the idea of working out on a regular basis sounds, a hectic life always seems to get in the way. Danny Johnson, a wellness physical therapist with the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says the key is changing the way people think of a workout and finding ways to work exercises into a normal day. You don't necessarily have to always get to the gym, so take a walk with a friend for a meeting instead of sitting at a conference table. She also suggests parking farther away from a destination to get a few extra steps in. She says if you're in the office and you have 10 minutes before your next meeting, you can move, do some lunges, stretches, or walk up some stairs. The main thing, she says, is not to make workouts an all-or-nothing activity. So just get moving. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. The United States has the highest rate of opioid use in the world, consuming 88% more prescription opioids per capita than second-ranked Germany, and seven times more than the United Kingdom. Mayo Clinic researchers recently published a paper in the BMJ on trends in opioid use over the last 10 years. Researchers found that despite the substantial attention being paid to the opioid epidemic, opioid prescribing had not decreased much from its peak around the year 2012. And here to discuss are two of the co-authors of the paper, Mayo Clinic Dr. Molly Jeffrey and Dr. Michael Hooten. Dr. Jeffrey is the Scientific Director of Emergency Medicine Research, and Dr. Hooten is an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. Thank you. How did you conduct this study? It was a lot of people. Yes, it was. We have access here at Mayo Clinic to the Optum Labs data warehouse. In fact, Mayo Clinic was one of the founding partners with Optum Labs. And what it is, is it's a large repository of claims data. What that means is when you go in um, to the doctor and you submit an insurance claim, it generates a record that the insurance company keeps track of. And it includes information like what procedures were done or billed for. Then we also have information like, uh, what kind of medications did you fill using your health insurance? So all of that information is kept in a de-identified database that we access for use in research. In this particular study, we had a population of 48 million people. That included both people who have commercial insurance, and generally those are younger people um, who get their insurance through their employer sure. or maybe on an open marketplace. And then also people who have Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage is a type of Medicare where you get your Medicare coverage from a private company. 
that includes both people who are 65 and older and people who are disabled and receive Medicare for that reason. So it's quite a broad population, but it's not everybody in the United States. And in particular, you know, we're missing veterans, uh, we're missing people with Medicaid, and we're missing the uninsured. So it's not a representative sample of the U.S., but it's a big chunk. Wow. And what did you find? Well, we were a bit surprised. So what we did is we looked at the last 10 years. So it was uh, 2007 through 2016. And everybody who's listening knows how much attention is being paid to opioids right now. It's on the news. It's in policy. um, uh, There's a lot of people talking about it. So I think we expected to see more of a decline in opioid prescribing Mm -hmm. over the time period that we studied and in maybe fewer people taking opioids. We found actually that it has sort of plateaued. So since about 2012, we aren't seeing major differences in how many people take opioids or in um, how much opioids are out there. So Dr. Hooten, did that surprise you? Yes, it is surprising because there was other data from other sources within the U.S. that suggested that the total number of prescriptions had declined and that also the total dose prescribed had declined. These data just further suggest that what we're seeing, there there are mixed results. And although there's tremendous efforts underway to optimize use of opioids, by that I mean to reduce the frequency of using the overall total dose, there's still much more work that needs to happen. Something I found quite interesting about the study was the point that among the different groups that were insured, there were different rates of opioid dose use. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, so this is one of the really important things about the way we conducted the study is we split our population and studied each of them separately. It makes it a little harder to communicate the results, but it's really important um, from a policy perspective and just to understand what's going on. So when you look at the commercially insured, you know, there's a lot of children in there. There's a lot of people who aren't taking opioids, so they had much lower rate of opioid use. I think it was around 6 to 7 percent of people used opioids in a given quarter. Um, In the aged Medicare population, that rate was higher, and we would expect that because elderly people do uh, tend to have more painful conditions like arthritis or or other conditions, but the disabled Medicare group really had the highest rates by far. And when we looked at the doses, the average doses, in the disabled Medicare group, that measure was over 50 milligrams of morphine equivalents for the entire study period. Let me tell you what that means. So... Milligrams of morphine equivalent is the way we measure opioids when we're looking at different types. You've all heard about fentanyl and how strong it is. We don't measure milligrams of fentanyl, we measure micrograms of fentanyl. But what MME does is it translates those micrograms of fentanyl into an equivalent amount of morphine. That 50 MME for long term, is that okay? Yeah, it's very clear that as the morphine equivalent dose increases, so does the odds or risk of an accidental overdose death. And you start seeing significant magnitudes at that 50 uh, morphine equivalent cutoff. For example, so 50 morphine uh, equivalents, the risk or odds of an accidental overdose death may be two to three times that of an individual taking 20 morphine equivalents. And the odds just continue to increase as that uh, dose increases. The information that you found out through this study, how do you suspect it's going to be used or going forward, what do you expect to happen? Well, we had a lot of interest um, when, when the study was published because, as Mike said, different studies using different methods and different data sets have shown slightly different uh, trends. 
Some studies have shown uh, quite a decrease in the um, number of prescriptions or the total amount prescribed. And this is different from what we measured. What we measured is out of 100 people in a given quarter, how many took any opioids? And as I said, that really has not changed very much since about 2012. Other studies have looked at how much total opioids are out there mm -hmm. or how many prescriptions have been filled. And some of those things have started to come down in a different way. I don't think that either set of studies is incorrect. I think they're just um, studying different things. They're measuring different things. And so it's interesting to think about how that pattern could have happened. And one thing that's possible is that people who are on very high doses of opioids might not be filling as many, so they might not be getting those high doses of opioids anymore. Um, or people who are regular fillers who used to get monthly opioids may not be getting as many prescriptions. So that kind of difference would create the kind of pattern that we saw. We don't know that that's what happened, but it would be of great interest to find out what exactly is happening because um, as policymakers are thinking about how to address the opioid epidemic, people who are on chronic opioid therapy are often on high doses and they start to look like where we should target. And the reason for that is in our study, we found that the vast majority of people who fill opioids take it for a very short period of time. In the disabled Medicare population, it's about 14% of people who were using opioids use them long term. Okay, so like greater than 90 days, mm -hmm. it was only 14%, but they were filling 89% of the total volume of opioids. Okay, so yeah. it's a small so group of people. So it gives us a nice people. target to try to address. In theory, but is that the place that we should be addressing? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important policy question. Mm -hmm. So we know that in terms of acute use, there are lots of times when people could be using um, ibuprofen or acetaminophen or aspirin right. or lots of other things that are not addictive that might work just as well. What should the takeaway be for someone like me that very occasionally gets a prescription? I think it would be important for individuals who receive an opioid for a short-term problem, for instance, for post-surgical pain or mild uh, musculoskeletal trauma, there's a certain percentage or proportion of individuals that even after a short-term exposure will go on to use long-term opioids. So even short, lower-dose exposures uh, should be critically considered and use them very, very carefully. And a second concern is that any medications that are left over from those short prescriptions, typically people put them in the medicine cabinet at home, which other individuals may have access to, including younger individuals, children, mm -hmm. friends of children. So disposing of those medications is very important. We've been talking about Mayo Clinic's research on opioid use with Dr. Molly Jeffrey and Dr. Michael Hooten, both here at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn how new radiotherapy treatments can offer better preservation of cognitive function for brain tumor patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to treating brain cancer, radiation therapy is one of the best tools to kill cancer cells. But it's not without consequence. Loss of cognitive function as a result of brain radiation is one common side effect. New research at Mayo Clinic is offering hope. A new approach to whole brain radiation, which avoids the hippocampus area of the brain, is showing results in preserving cognitive function and preventing memory loss. These findings were presented recently at the 2018 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Radiation Oncology, or 
Astro. And here to discuss is the senior author of the study, Mayo Clinic Radiation Oncologist, Dr. Paul Brown. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brown. It's nice to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is really exciting news. Yes, it is. It's a big advance. It's been based off of several decades of work. So it's neat to see this come to fruition. So tell us a little bit about brain tumors, first of all. How common are they? And then what's the difference between a primary and a secondary? The brain metastasis arise from a primary cancer. So for example, lung cancer, uh, breast cancer, melanoma. They spread through the blood system and then go to the brain and then they grow there. Uh, and uh, it's a very serious situation. If left untreated, they can be fatal in just a couple months. Uh, that's quite different from a primary brain tumor that develops in the brain itself. Uh, brain metastasis, they're very common. There's approximately 200,000 patients diagnosed with brain metastasis in the United States each year. Uh, whole brain radiation therapy has been the primary treatment for this disease process since the 1950s. But we've recently learned that about half of patients develop cognitive deficits after whole brain radiation therapy. Uh, so we obviously need to do better for our patients. And is whole brain radiation the standard of care, whether it's a primary or a secondary tumor? It's only standard of care for if it's a secondary tumor. That's okay. correct. Yeah, so for brain metastasis. I've always wondered, how is it that uh, when you have a brain tumor, you have to have chemotherapy that's so strong it can get past that blood-brain barrier, but yet a cancer can metastasize to the brain, it seems, fairly easily. Am I getting that wrong, or is that what, does that happen? You're correct. Yeah, brain, there's certain, certain primary diseases that frequently do go to the brain, and the ones I named were, uh, were lung, breast melanoma. Mm -hmm. And then for some reason, we don't understand all the reasons. There's some where it's quite rare. So examples where it'd be quite rare would be prostate cancer, for mm -hmm. example. So there's a, there, it's a, there's a widespread difference between the different primary types. If we could just get that blood-brain barrier to figure out, hey, don't let this tumor in, that would be better. The, <laughs> yeah. There's actually investigators working on prevention, and uh, one of the biggest areas of prevention right now are uh, the systemic therapies or the targeted therapies. They're showing some uh, significant advancements in preventing the development of brain metastasis. So that's actually, you're correct, that's the most important step. All right, yeah. the both of you know this yeah. because you're both doctors, and, but what is the hippocampus and why is it important? I was actually hoping for a little review on that myself. <laughs> It's an interesting structure. It's named after uh, the seahorse because it resembles that. Oh, wow. Uh, we have two of them. They both are in the medial temporal lobes. Uh, they run along the temporal lobes. They're a very small structure. They're only about three to four cc's. So that's 2% mm. of the entire brain. Mm -hmm. Although they're very small, uh, they are very important. Uh, we need them basically to form memories or to learn new information. Uh, so basically, if, you, if your hippocampal structure is not working, you cannot form new memories. Most of our understanding about the hippocampus came from probably the most famous patient in neurosciences, Mr. H.M., as he's mm -hmm. called. As a young man, he suffered a bike accident and developed seizures that progressively worsened as he got older. This is back in 1957, so a long time mm -hmm. ago. They decided that they would resect the medial temporal lobes on both sides. And after they performed the surgery, he did have success. His seizures were controlled. He maintained his intelligence, but he immediately had anterograde amnesia. In other words, he could never form any new memories. He was able to maintain his long-term memories and his intelligence. And with these deficits, uh, he was studied for the next five decades until he died in his 80s. And uh, we learned a, a lot from him. 
a lot of it was because of the dedication of the investigators, but really it was because of Mr. H.M. He was known as a very kind and generous man. If they could learn from him and help uh, other patients, that was his goal. Wow, that's really interesting. And so in traditional treatment, the entire brain was radiated. And what sort of results did that have? Yep. As mentioned earlier, a pretty high rate of cognitive deficits on the order of more than half of patients. And we learned over the past few decades through animal studies and some preclinical data that the hippocampus is important besides just memory for a few functions. One would be neurogenesis or the formation of new neurons, even in the adult brain. When I went to medical school, which is quite a while ago, we were taught that there was no neurogenesis in the adult brain, but that has since been changed, although it's still a controversy. (laughs) And the other thing we've learned is that the hippocampus is exquisitely sensitive to radiation therapy. So based off of that information, we developed these radiation techniques that are very advanced, where you treat the whole brain with radiation therapy, but you avoid the hippocampal region. How can you do that? Yeah, Yeah. it's with a very advanced technique called intensity modulated radiation uh, therapy. You're using computer algorithms that look at tens of thousands of algorithms to pick the best plan for the patient. Although radiation centers are comfortable doing IMRT, this is probably more than they typically do. So when we did the study, we actually had an independent group review each center's uh, treatment planning delivery system. That included physics. And then we had a group of experts that reviewed every radiation plan. And we, not uncommonly, would contact the center and have them change the plan. So this is this is very technical. Yeah. Could you back us up just a little bit as and yeah. tell us, you know, who are these patients that were in this study? Who were... Great question. So this is a study we launched a few years ago. Uh, it was over 500 patients in North America. They had brain metastasis. It could be from any primary. The majority of the patients, which is common, it's actually common uh, from a disease standpoint in the United States, where the brain metastasis were from lung cancer. Next would be breast, and then the others follow. So... I just need to go back a second because did you just say you used math to figure out how to avoid the hippocampus? Is that what you just said? <laughs> Smart- so we should pay attention in math. <laughs> Smarter people than wow. myself did that, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What are the results? You said some of the people, yeah. you changed their treatments. What else did you learn? That's exactly right. For the study, half of the patients received hippocampal avoidance, whole brain radiation therapy with a medicine called memantine. An earlier study had shown that memantine, which is often used to treat dementia had some cognitive benefits. Mm -hmm. And then we compared that to half of the patients received standard whole brain with memantine. And the patients that received hippocampal avoidance whole brain with memantine has significantly better cognitive function compared to those that receive standard whole brain radiation therapy. Now, here's a question about the treatment. And I think some of our listeners might think, well, why don't you just radiate those little spots that are there? Excellent question. So that's typically our preference for patients that have limited number of brain metastasis, we would just do focused radiation. Uh, that's called radiosurgery. For a number of patients, they'll have so many uh, metastasis, it's not viable to treat uh, with a radiosurgery device. So is this going to change the care of patients all over the world? Yes, uh, in, in a number of ways. And at the very beginning of the conversation, you kind of alluded to that. For patients that will be needing whole brain radiation therapy to treat their brain metastasis, hippocampal avoidance, whole brain, imamantine will be the standard. But also, as you mentioned earlier, for people with primary brain tumors, we now know that it's important to avoid the hippocampal region. Mm -hmm. So that's actually going to shape our radiation therapy plans, which will help those patients as well. That's great. 
It's amazing. Well, we've been talking with Mayo Clinic radiation oncologist, Dr. Paul Brown, about preserving cognitive function for brain tumor patients who undergo radiotherapy. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. From Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.